Now, as one of the four Gospels in the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark records the life of Jesus as he walked on the earth some 2,000 years ago. Now, the very start of this Gospel is focused on this voice crying in the wilderness. A man known as John the Baptist was out preaching a message of repentance and remission of sins. He's described as a messenger to come before Jesus or to prepare the way for his coming. And it was recorded there that all the land of Judea went out to him. So people from all regions came. And they came to be baptised of him. That's what's recorded. People came wanting to turn their lives around in a new direction. They would confess their sins and be baptised into the river Jordan. That's what we've just heard. So what was this baptism all about? What was John the Baptist actually doing? And how did it affect the lives of the people involved? Now, baptism, as it's described in the Bible, is fairly simple. It just involves a person being submerged under the water and rising back out again. That's what's described to us. In physical terms, it's not much different to having a swim in a river or even having a bath. The physical aspects of it go about that far. Now, in the record in Mark, we see that John was performing these baptisms in the River Jordan. People were coming to him to be immersed with him, immerse them in the river. Now, this record was originally written in the Greek language. Now, if we go back to the Greek text and try to understand more about baptism from the word that's presented in our Bibles, it's translated from the Greek word baptismo. Uh, baptismo is has a meaning of to immerse, to submerge, to make fully wet. Literal meaning, so it can be used for other things besides people. So anything that's submerged into a liquid. Now even clothes, when they're washed, you could talk about it. So this, the, the description is really as simple as that. It's saying it's something that's immersed. But in the New Testament of the Bible, it's used exclusively to refer to people being baptised in a ceremonial baptism. So it's used in a special sense throughout the New Testament. Now, the people coming to John the Baptist for baptism were looking for something a little bit more than a wash. They could have done that themselves. They wanted something more. Look in verse 4. John did baptise in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all in the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and they all baptised of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So there's these ideas of repentance and sins. So his baptism is linked with people repenting, means to change their ways, the remission of sins. And the act of the baptism is something that involved more than just this physical action of water. The people themselves were changed as part of this process. And it signified a turning point in their lives where they left behold an old way and turned to something new. Now, while John the Baptism is known for his teaching of baptism, and that's mainly what he is known about, it didn't end with him. As we go through the Gospels, we find out baptism is an ongoing theme, even past the time of John the Baptist. In our reading tonight, Mark chapter 1, 
we see the introduction of Jesus. It records John the Baptist's teaching that Jesus was to come and he would be greater than he himself was. He knew that Jesus would also continue this concept of baptism. We saw that in verse 7. And he preached, saying, There comes one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptised you with water, but he shall baptise you with the Holy Spirit. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised of John in the Jordan. So John knew that Jesus was to come and he would also be baptising. And Jesus himself was baptised by John the Baptist. Now, the Gospel then goes on to record the life and the teachings of Jesus. Jesus would continue to teach the need for repentance, and as John had, but he would take that to a whole new level. Similarly, the baptism of Jesus took on the form of the baptism of John, but in Jesus it took on also a whole new level. In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, uh, we see mention about Jesus performing baptisms. So John is another record, just like Mark, which describes the, uh, the incidents regarding the life of Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 1, we see a little description here about how, John, how Jesus was going with, his, with what he was his teaching and with baptism. Verse 1 of John 4. Now here it refers to what the Pharisees, now they're the religious leaders at the time of Jesus, or one of the groups of religious leaders, and it's what they understood about Jesus baptising. It says there, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptised more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptised not, baptised not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So at this point, Jesus and his disciples were baptising more people than John the Baptist. But at this time, Jesus moved on to the region of Galilee when his fame started causing conflict with the Pharisees in Judea. So baptism continued to be a feature of the ministry of Jesus. Now the times of, the Je the times of Jesus on earth were, were really only the beginning of the teachings of Jesus to the world. The Bible records that after three and a half years, Jesus was taken up into heaven to be with God. In his place, there were a network of disciples that took on the role of teaching the gospel that Jesus had taught. Now, the New Testament of the Bible covers the period of the following half a century, and it includes the events and teachings around the disciples. Now, as part of this, we can see the continued role of baptism among the believers in that first century and how it was central to the Christians of that first century. Now, we're going to take us now to Acts chapter 8, where we see some of the incidents that unfold. So the book of Acts tells us the incidents that unfolded after Jesus was, was uh, taken up into heaven. We're going to look at chapter 8 initially. Now, in Acts 8, we read of the preaching of the Apostle Philip. Now, at that point, he went to a, a, the city of Samaria and he taught there. And together with performing some miracles to help people in need. We'll look at Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto the, those things which Philip spake 
hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. There was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon, who before time in the city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving that he himself was some great one. So the teaching in Samaria had been very influential. The people were flocking to Philip to hear what he had to say and to be healed by the power of God. But there was a man there named Simon who would feel threatened by this newcomer. But the description in Acts then goes on to describe what the people did when they were convinced of the teachings of Philip. Clearly this teaching would have changed how they lived their lives. But when the record speaks of the response, the response to to the, belief, the initial response to belief is to be baptised. We see that in verse 12. But when the, they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptised, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. So the pattern is similar through the records of teachings of this time. Belief and baptism go hand in hand. This is the expected outcome of someone believing the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, at a later time, further in this chapter, this disciple Philip was teaching the gospel to a travelling Ethiopian. Now, God had directed Philip to help him to understand the words of the scriptures, and Philip proceeded to teach the message of Jesus. See this in verse 35. It reads there, Then Philip opened his mouth, and he began at the same scripture, and he preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptised? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down, both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptised him. So after having just been taught the gospel, the Ethiopian sees a body of water, and he asks, what hinders me from being baptised? This is clearly a natural reaction to the teaching that he had learnt, and he felt that that was the next step for him or at least it was something important for him to do. So this fits with a pattern that we've seen so far of believers wanting to be baptised. Now, the question actually wasn't rhetorical, the question that the, the Ethiopian made, and Philip gave an answer. And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So there was a condition on the baptism, or at least a condition on it being effective, it was important that he at first believe with all his heart. It wasn't to be a half-hearted thing or something to, something to be done without understanding of what it actually was. But the Ethiopian asserted his belief in the teachings that he'd received and the meaning of the scripture that they had been discussing. So he stated, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, following that confession of belief... Philip then went ahead and baptised the Ethiopian eunuch. And it's here that we see a description of how it was carried out, verse 38. 
And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptised him. So both of them went down into the water. The baptism occurred through the immersion of this eunuch underwater, after which she came back up, back up out of the water again, and that was the baptism. Now, if we move forward to Acts chapter 19, we find the Apostle Paul coming to the city of Ephesus, where we see another incident. I'm just going to read from the start of this chapter. Now, it's here that the topic of baptism is discussed. Now, as part of this incident, we find that baptism isn't just baptism. Instead, we find that baptism is defined by the meaning that's ascribed to it at the time that it happened. I'll read this in, from the first verse. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Apollos being another disciple, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptised? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, Well, John verily baptised with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. So the baptism of John was different to being baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus because these people were baptised again in the name of the Lord Jesus after having previously been baptised of John. So clearly one would not substitute for the other because in this case the people were being rebaptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's a bit like vaccines. A vaccine isn't just a vaccine. There's AstraZeneca, there's Pfizer, Moderna... There's influenza, there's chickenpox, measles, polio, tetanus, and many more. Your tetanus vaccine is not going to help you against COVID-19. So a vaccine is just not a vaccine. Being vaccinated doesn't mean much unless there's a, con unless there's a context of what the vaccine is. Similarly, baptism is only a process to an end. And it's as much about the state of the mind and purpose of the, per of the person at the time of baptism as it is about the immersion in the water itself. So even though the baptism of John was a good thing, it didn't achieve what a baptism in the name of Jesus could do. So repentance from the ways of sin was and always is a good thing, but Jesus was offering more than this. So what's so special about the baptism into the name of the Lord Jesus? Why was it so much more special? Now we can gain some insight from a letter in the Bible written by the Apostle Paul to the believers in Galatia in the first century AD. So we look at the, at the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. So we're looking at Galatians chapter 3. Now here, the Apostle Paul is disappointed that the Galatians have shifted focus from the teachings of Jesus and instead have placed importance on the Jewish law. So they had learnt the principles of Jesus and now they were instead focusing on something that was a little different. So we can pick up the record at the start of Galatians 3. Here he's, he's fairly abrupt in his language. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ 
hath evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect in the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministered to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he by the works of the law, or the hearing of faith? So Paul was setting up the question whether faith in Jesus was of ultimate importance or whether focus should instead be on following the laws originating from the commands of God in the old, recorded in the Old Testament. The faith in Jesus is depicted, is depicted as being something of the spirit. It's about making actions based on principles of respect for God, truthfulness, love. In comparison, Paul speaks of law obedience being something of the flesh. It's about doing things technically to obey laws without necessarily following the spirit of them. Now, towards the end of this chapter, Paul looks at the role of law and how it relates to Jesus. He describes it as a comparison between a teacher and a parent. We see that in verse 24, Galatians 3.24. It says there, The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under, school, under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. The Lord was like a schoolteacher, but faith brought God as a parent. Now it's here that baptism is brought into the picture. Baptism into Christ is equated to putting on Christ. Verse 27. For as many of you as have been baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So this putting on of Christ achieves an inheritance, an inheritance in the promises of Abraham. Now the baptism process involves associating with a new identity. That's how you obtain an inheritance. You're, you're, you're associated with this identity. It's about obtaining the benefits that Jesus himself has on account of his heritage. Now putting on clothes changes our appearance. Putting on Jesus changes our identity in the eyes of God. We become as Jesus to him. Now, in describing the baptism of Christ, there are some specific terms used in the Bible. Now, back in Galatians 3.27, it said it was termed baptised into Christ. When we considered the Ephesians in Acts chapter 19, we read that they were all baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus now, the New Testament uses this terminology quite regularly. We have things like in the name of Jesus, in Jesus' name, believe on the name of Jesus, do all in the name of Jesus, give thanks in the name of Jesus. So what does this mean? Is it literally that Jesus' name is so special? If so, we should probably look at what Jesus' name actually was. Now, 
the spelling and pronunciation of the name of Jesus has been through a difficult path in the past couple of millennia. From its Jewish origins through the Greek, Latin transcriptions and varying alphabets, we now arrive at the name Jesus in the popular English language culture. But it wasn't always this way. Now, even if we turn the clock back to 1611 with the King James Version of the Bible, they didn't even have the letter J. And that was where we had Jesus' name started with the letter I in the original King James. But going back to the time of Jesus, his name was more like Yeshua. The Hebrew name Yeshua has a meaning. It means the salvation of Yah, the salvation of God. Now, this name was directly stipulated by an angel of God who appeared to Mary before his birth. That was recorded in Luke chapter 1. It it reads there, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favour with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall be called his name Jesus. He shall be great, he shall be called the Son of the Highest, And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Jesus' name was declared. He declared his purpose. And that purpose was to bring the salvation of God to the world. So speaking of his name has significance, as his name has an important meaning and describes the purpose of his life. But... Does that fully explain what it means to speak of things in Jesus' name, to be baptised in Jesus' name? A useful example is the practice of asking God for things in the name of Jesus. This is something we commonly hear in prayers. A statement like that will often get appended to the end of a prayer. It's not just a signal that the prayer has ended. Sometimes maybe it is. But there's a basis for this in the Gospel of John in in chapter 16. We'll have a look at that now because I think this helps us in our understanding of where this baptism is going. Now, John 16 is a record of a speech given by Jesus to his apostles before he was crucified. Now, a challenge for Jesus at this point was that he would soon be leaving his disciples to the world while he was absent. This was going to be a roller coaster of emotions for them. Firstly, there was a terror of the crucifixion, but then that was to give way to the joy of the resurrection. But then there was this bittersweet ascension to be with God, where he would no longer be with them again. But yet they knew that he'd been glorified. Now, we read of Jesus' words here in John 16, verse 19. Now, Jesus knew they were desirous to ask him And he said unto them, Do you inquire among yourselves of what I said, A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. Ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Jesus is warning them of the times of sorrow and rejoicing. But in the middle of this, he speaks about some practical things. Now, until this time, the disciples had always had Jesus with them. And if there was something they wanted, they could ask him. But this was going to change. He encouraged them that at that time, they could instead ask God directly, but in his name. You see this in verse 22. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will 
see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man takes from you. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. So Jesus was preparing his disciples to remove the middleman in their relationship with God. They could speak with God, their Father, in the way that Jesus did. As the passage goes on, he, he reinforces this. Verse 25. These things have I spoken unto you in, in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak to you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day ye shall ask in my name, and I shall not say unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. Now, at a superficial level, it sounds handy to be able to tack, we pray this in Jesus' name, onto the end of a prayer, so that whatsoever you shall ask in the Father's name, ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. But it's not something superficial. There's clearly something deeper than that in it. Now, I don't, it's not actually, I think, all that complicated. We can, we can see plenty of analogy in our modern world, even with that same language. Let's say if I were to go and ring up, ring up the naval group and I'll start asking questions about the future submarines program. Now, I might get a bit of basic public relations information, but I wouldn't get much further than that. I wouldn't be getting special defence secrets. On the other hand, if I worked in the Department of Defence, and started asking questions in the name of the Department of Defence, I might open a whole new world of access. When I act as an agent of an organisation, I can act in the name of that organisation and wield the power and authority that that organisation has. So is this what Jesus is talking about when he offers his disciples to ask God in his name? It would seem so. There's a mechanism so that when we speak to God, he sees this as Jesus speaking to him, as the organisation of Jesus, the collective peoples in his name. Instead of being the unknown sinner, the disciples could enjoy access with God that his very son enjoyed. But this is really what we've already seen in Galatians. In Galatians it said, For as many of you have been baptised into Christ, have put on Christ. The putting on with clothes that changes the appearance, but putting on Jesus changes our identity in the eyes of God. We become as Jesus to him. This is all linked back to the baptism. Now, it gets a bit deeper than this. There's, more, there's, a, there's another connection back to this. Now, a section of the Bible that really speaks about joining together with Jesus is the letter to Romans, and in chapter 6 in particular. So we're just going to spend a little bit of time exploring how this is explained in that letter to the Romans. Now here we see a connection made back to baptism, where it's a symbol that's used in identifying with Christ. Romans 6 verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptised into Jesus Christ were baptised into his death. 
Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we had been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. So baptism is a symbol of identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus. By taking that step with God, we participate in a real way in the death and resurrection of Jesus. God has offered a connection with Jesus, symbolised in baptism, that brings life. But we can take a step back from this and say, well, what is really going on here? Now, here, to do that, we can look at the concept of sin, because that's what this was all about. Now, the book of Romans here has quite a lot to say about sin. In Romans 5, we read that sin was introduced into the world by the first man, Adam, and that has caused human mortality. Romans 5:12. By one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Therefore, as by the offence of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation. It's verse 18. So sin is a term that's used to describe when people ignore the commandments of God and instead they do what they think is right themselves. And this is what happened with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam ignored what God said and thought he knew better about what was right and wrong. Now people have been mortal and suffered death on account of sin but God has offered a solution for sin, and we can see a hint of God's solution back in Romans chapter 4. There he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So people are blessed if God doesn't count their sin. And this opens up the question, how can you stop your sins being counted? This chapter of Romans then considers a particular person named Abraham. It's stated that his faith was counted unto him as righteousness. The same idea of being counted. Then goes on to say that that was not limited to him. There's a mechanism that's open to everyone to be counted righteous. Just as we were counted sinners, we can be counted righteous. Verse 23 of Romans 4. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. So it's been through Jesus that this covering of sins has been achieved. There's two steps here. One was Jesus' death, where he was delivered, and the second was his resurrection, where he was raised from the dead. So how does this work? And how does the life of Jesus affect us so that's really the gap here we can see how there's a solution for jesus how does that affect us moving on to chapter 5 verse 9 he says being now justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath through him for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to god by the death of his son much more being reconciled we will be saved by his life there's a reconciliation by jesus death and then a saving by his life so this means the resurrection of Jesus has a saving power to everyone who participates. Now reconciliation in death goes back to the punishment of sins. Given that the punishment of sin is death, it makes sense that the death is the part of the reconciliation process. 
But why the death of Jesus for our reconciliation? Now, one reason of the significance of Jesus' death is that his death was not just. Jesus was without sin, and so he was not worthy of death. There's a description of this in Acts chapter 2, back over in the, in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 21, it says, reads there, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves know. Him, being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Death could not hold Jesus because he was not deserving of death. So God was right to raise him from the dead. God could raise him and still be righteous in doing that. So Jesus' death is special because by nature it was only temporary. Now that's in contrast to Adam's death, which was deserving. Now by inheritance we experience the death of Adam. But if we have access to this special death of Jesus instead, it can offer us a hope for death becoming something that's temporary instead of death being something that's permanent. So Jesus has opened a way where he can rightfully be raised from the dead. If we become identified with Jesus to God, we look like part of Jesus. And we can share in the reward that Jesus brings through his obedience. If we participate in his death so that that is effective in being the punishment for our sin, we participate in his resurrection. And that's also effective in giving us life. So we see in, in chapter 6, verse 22, But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have that hope of life through Jesus and it's by being associated with him through baptism that we can participate in that great thing that God has offered. But, so based on that, we can see what baptism can achieve, what faith in Jesus and becoming part with Jesus, being associated with Jesus can achieve. But then we ask the question, well... Do we need to do baptism? Can we just have the faith in Jesus? Now, the connection that baptism offers with Jesus is great. It offers that hope of life that can't be found anywhere else. It's a very significant connection. We see right through the scriptures that connection and what it might mean. But we can still ask, is it really necessary or is it just a technical detail that's not really that important? Is it really the faith that matters? We earlier looked at that letter of Paul to the Galatians. It contrasts works against faith. And it's there that the hearing of faith is endorsed. In Galatians 3, 2, it said, This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, that you are now perfect by the flesh. Is the physical act of baptism an act of the flesh that is something secondary? 
It's a question that we ask. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, the words of Jesus are recorded on this subject. Have it here, Mark 16, verse 15. It says there, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. In a very basic test of salvation, baptism is right there. He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. It's a very telling passage, but you kind of left just that little bit put out in that of the four possible combinations of belief and baptism, three out of those four are included, and the very one we're interested in is not actually included in that. So the question of uh, if you believe but are not baptised, it's, it's not even in there. Certainly believe and baptised, put those two together and says, yes, that's the way to salvation. No belief, well, that's not going to get you salvation. It doesn't actually say what happens if you're believed but are not baptised. But it's almost as if that's not going to happen. That's the way that's written. It's written as if, well, who would do that? It's as if that's not even something that you would consider. The belief is a difficult step. That's the one where the believer will naturally, will not, then they'll naturally want to follow the pathway that God has set down. Now, many years earlier than this, there's a record of another type of baptism. Now, in the biblical book of Kings, it records a Syrian military general named Naaman. Now, he visited Israel in an attempt to be healed of leprosy. He came to the prophet Elisha, who offered a healing. He said to him, go wash seven times in the River Jordan. But the general nearly passed this up on account of pride. He goes and says, Are not Abana and Farfa rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Elisha had said to him, Look, if you just go and wash in the River Jordan, seven times in the River Jordan, you'll be healed. And he says, I'm not going to do that. Because that's too simple. But... God had, had, had given, put before him a very specific thing that he was told to do. It wasn't a particularly hard thing to do, but it was specific nonetheless. And the outcome for him was determined by that. When he eventually did wash in the River Jordan, he was cleansed of his leprosy. So when he saw sense, he swallowed his pride and followed the instructions, he was healed. The barrier was there, though. And God needed to be followed, and God's way needed to be followed in order to get the outcome. In a similar way, we can see baptism. Perhaps baptism is a barrier of pride. It's not something that the, the pride can easily go through necessarily. It's an act of humility to submit yourself to baptism. So it can be difficult, but nonetheless, it is a, a process that God has laid down. All it requires is some humility and willingness to submit yourself to the instructions of God. There's still one question that I haven't really addressed. And that is, what really changes to someone who is baptised? 
you have a bath, you come out cleaner. You have a baptism, I guess you come out a little bit physically cleaner, depending on the water that you're baptised in. But that's not the point. Now, a feature of baptism, that it's a marker in a person's life journey. It's an act that allows people to divide their life into a period that was the old person and a period that's the new person. If you look back at the footprints behind you, there's one spot where there's a line that marks the new life as you walk through your life. It's that one point where you've changed and made that commitment to God. It's a sign of a commitment, recognition that there needs to be a change. It gives freedom to wash away the past, to build a new person in Christ. We're going to turn to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Because this speaks about this very topic. It talks about being risen with Christ. And what that means. Because there's some very practical outworkings of what we need to do here. So we look at Colossians 3 from verse 1. And if you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on the things above, not on things on earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked in some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So becoming a new person in Christ is a great new opportunity. It allows us to change who we are and what we depend on. It's not signing up to a whole list of obligations. It's taking a whole new opportunity. It's not something that we look, for, look as something being burdensome. It's looking at something that's an opportunity for us, an opportunity to take something new, an opportunity to take something that is much better. Sure, there are things there that you don't want to do, that we're told we shouldn't be doing these things. But hidden in that also, there is a lot of opportunity. Let's just think, our lives and our whole concept of self, each one of us individually, our concept of self, that's built on, it's built on perhaps two things. One is what we see as important and where we source our sense of esteem from. Okay, so our lives, our whole self is built on what we see as important 
and where our source of esteem comes from. So what we see as important is what things we think are important in the world, what things are important in our life, what we need to see, what makes us happy if it happens or sad if it doesn't. Things we see are important. And the other one is where our source of esteem comes from. By nature, we'll be happy if people endorse us or people say that we're doing good things or people are happy about what we do. We tend to be happy about that. If people say we're doing a good job, we like that. Our sense of esteem comes when people build us up. That's by nature. We look to people to build us up and we, get, we gain success when we see the import, we gain a sense of success when we see important things around us happen. But this all is based on two things. It's based on what we think is important and it's where we get our esteem from. We can think we're doing well in life or failing based on whether we think we are meeting other people's expectations. Now, teenagers will go around doing silly things to get support of their peer group. We know that happens. But they do that for their esteem, to make themselves feel okay with themselves. Adults can, come, can, become, can become depressed when they don't think that other people appreciate them. Or if their friends and their family don't support them. But the beauty of what God offers us with a new life in Jesus is that it changes all of these systems. It's not business as usual. Our source of values changes. Our concept of what's right or wrong, what's good or bad, what's valuable, what's not valuable, that all now comes from a different source. It comes from the word of God. We then know what's right, what's wrong, where values come from. We don't, well, that doesn't come from these values that we see around us in the world. Then we measure ourselves against Jesus' esteem, not what other people think about us. We measure who we are, whether we are the right person, based on what God will think of us what God's position is. We no longer have that dependence on the systems around us. Whether other people like us or agree with us doesn't really matter because we have a way of measuring what we do and that's with the values of God. So there's a whole change here that comes about and essentially it is marked by that process of baptism. We can stand strong in ourselves because we have put on Christ. And it's actually Christ that we stand strong in, not ourselves. We know we have the love of God and we know that he will not forsake us. We don't have to depend on the, on the natures of what happens of the people around us. Hebrews 13 verse 5 reads this, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath says, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. There's power in that, that we can step beyond the power of the people about us have. God has truly given us a great opportunity to join with him in this way. We can leave behind dependence on the toxic relationships of humanity and instead attach ourselves to something that is truly good something that's permanent and something that's worthy of glory. Look at in Colossians 3, let's have a look at verse 15. It reads there, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, so that which also ye are called in one body. Be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, 
teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So baptism, in and of itself, is a hollow physical action. It's like taking a bath. But when this is an action that's taken in the name of the Lord Jesus, we take up God's offer to put on Christ, then it's something truly powerful indeed. It marks a point where we leave behind the cares of humanity and place ourselves in the care of the creator of the universe. It's a symbol that he's given us to associate with his son and one that we are blessed to receive. 